All right, well, good morning, Community Alliance Church. I am, I've been, I gotta tell you, I've been looking forward to today for so long. I am so excited, it's Sunday, and I've been looking forward to this particular Sunday for months because today we are diving into our fall series. A few weeks ago, my family, we, we got in the car, we went down to the eye doctor for our annual eye doctor visit, and the eye doctor was, he was examining my son, and you know, those big like contraption or apparatus things that they look through, and they ask you, you know, better, worse, you know, those, those questions. He got done with that, he moved it aside, and he looked at my 10-year-old, and he said, well, that settles it. You, you have myopia, and my son looks at him with this defensive look. Maya, what? Like, I didn't take anything of yours, I promise. <laughs> and the doctor said, no, no, no. You're, you're nearsighted. Now, my poor little boy, he's looking disappointed because he knows that means, just like mom and dad told him, he was going to have to get glasses. But I confess, he couldn't see me because he, he's nearsighted. I'm sitting over in the corner of the room thinking, I finally have a good story to tell at the beginning of this sermon. And my insurance paid for it, which is even better. <laughs> I am really excited because today we're diving into our fall series, and it is called Nearsighted. Now, if you're like me and you can't keep it straight, which one is nearsighted, which one is farsighted? Let me explain what nearsightedness is. According to the Mayo Clinic definition of diseases, nearsightedness is a common vision condition in which you can see objects near you clearly but objects farther away are blurry. Did you know that one in three people actually suffer from nearsightedness? And studies show that it's getting worse. It's becoming worse by the year 2050. The expectation is that half of the population is going to be nearsighted. I don't know why that is. Let's blame iPads, parents. I, I can get on board with that. But it's getting worse. So if you're looking for a career choice, maybe optometry would be a good one. But, but the thing is, really, nearsightedness is very treatable. But it doesn't come without its challenges. In fact, nearsightedness can cause some problems. I heard about a pastor one time who didn't realize how nearsighted he was until he was leading a public prayer time in his church. And an usher comes up to him and hands him this little piece of paper with a prayer request written on it. And the prayer request said, Phil Jones is going back to sea. His wife requests prayer from the congregation for his safety. But you can imagine the phone call this pastor got from an unhappy Mrs. Jones the next day. He nearsightedly messed up the punctuation and instead read, Phil Jones is going back to see his wife. Request prayers from the congregation for his safety. <laughs> now, now here's the thing. Nearsightedness, even though it affects uh, about maybe several hundred of the people that are here today, that's not the type of nearsightedness that we're going to be talking about in this series. We're going to be talking about not a vision condition. In this series, we're going to be talking about a, a human being condition. In fact, we're going to define nearsightedness in our series as this. We're going to define nearsightedness as a human condition in which you can see circumstances near you clearly, but the faraway outcomes can be blurry. It's a condition where we can see what's happening up close in our lives very, very clearly. It's kind of what all, all we see, but the outcomes from the decisions we might make in those circumstances are blurry. 
And really, even though some of us suffer from visual nearsightedness, I think you might admit we all tend to, from time to time, suffer from life nearsightedness. It's, it's kind of why we go for the bag of Doritos at 9 o'clock at night, even though we know we want to lose 10 pounds before we go to the beach in a couple weeks. It's why you might finance that television, even though you're struggling to pay the rest of your debts. It's why you'll say yes to the date with him, even though he has every sign of being Mr. Wrong, except for the Mr. Wrong t-shirt. There's a tendency in our lives to see what's close to us and give it all of our focus, all of our attention, and yet what's beyond can be blurry. In fact, there's an there's a institute out there called the Con- Institute for the Control of Eye Myopia, and this is the way they define nearsightedness. They say people who are nearsighted have eyes that act like magnifiers when viewing near objects and minifiers when viewing faraway objects. I don't know that I could find a better definition for what it's like to be nearsighted in our lives. Several months ago, our our family went down to the Carnegie Science Center down in Pittsburgh. And if you've ever been there, you might remember that there's an exhibit there that's this room that has just a a room full of microscopes. And and when you step back from the microscopes a little bit, you can see underneath the microscopes there's these little slides that have like tiny, tiny fragments on them. But when you step up to the microscope and look at what's on the slide through the magnification of the lens of the microscope, all of a sudden, giant, hairy tentacles and and razor-sharp teeth and these super-sized scissor-like pinchers that look like they could tear body from limb explode into the eye's view. And I remember thinking, looking through that microscope, I had this honey, I shrunk the kids moment, and I thought to myself, How terrifying would it be if these things that looked huge under the magnification of the microscope were really that big in real life? And today I wonder the same thing about some of our lives. I wonder if there are folks here today listening to this message who are maybe living under the terrifying magnification of some of the circumstances in life. Maybe you have some up-close problem that's just exploding in your eye's view. It's all you can see in your life. It's all that gets your focus. Hope is blurry. God's promises for your life are blurry. Your life's purposes are blurry. All you can see is that situation, and maybe, maybe because of it, you're on the cusp of making a nearsighted decision. Because that's all you can see. You're ready to sign the papers. You're ready to walk out the door. You're ready to stop believing. You're ready to give up. If you're in that situation today, I'm so glad you're here for this series because that's what this series is all about. In this series, we're going to look at one of my favorite Bible characters who has one of the best names that I know that you could give your child, Joseph. And as we look at Joseph in this series, we're going to see that in his life, he faced so many situations where he could have just taken out a microscope and looked at the circumstances in front of him and given it his complete focus. He had every opportunity to be nearsighted. We're going to pick up Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37 this morning. Joseph actually gets about 14 
chapters of airtime in Scripture. He gets more airtime than people like Noah or Daniel or Elijah. And in these weeks together, we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 37 through 50. You can make your way to Genesis 37 now. We're going to be looking at Joseph's life. We're looking at how he dealt with the opportunities in his life to be nearsighted. We're going to look at our lives and see how are we nearsighted. This is what we read when we go to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. The writer of Genesis tells us, This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, who is Jacob's 11th son, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Right from the, right from the outset, the story tell, or tells us that before we can really look forward into Joseph's life, we've got to look back. You see, Joseph didn't appear on the scene out of nowhere. Joseph came from a family. He came from the Jacob's family line. And if we want to understand Joseph, we have to look at the family that he came from. There's an author named Elizabeth Berg, and in one of her books, she she makes this really insightful comment through one of the characters. She writes this, You are born into your family, and your family is born into you. You are born into your family, but you know your family is born into you. Now, this is obvious when it comes to things like physical characteristics. Uh, all the time, growing up, my dad, who, he used to have this little silly joke he would say. He said, you know, before I was born, they were handing out noses, but I thought they said roses. So I said, give me a big one. And if you can tell from the screen, I have, I have the hereditary born-into-me Flores family nose. I also have the Flores family fondness for pretty lousy jokes. But it's not just your physical characteristics that are born into you. Have you had that moment yet where you do something and you think, oh my goodness, I just did the exact thing my dad always did. Or or you look at your daughter and she responds in a way and you think, I can see myself in her. You see, that's the truth is that Not just our family physical characteristics, but our family behaviors and our family patterns are born into us. So if we want to understand this character Joseph, we have to look at what patterns and behaviors were born into him. And we start to look at his family, we're going to see a pattern. I want to give you the pattern first, and I'm going to give you some examples in a minute. The first thing that you see when you look at the pattern of Joseph's family is that it starts with a far-off promise. Someone in his family would receive a far-off promise from God, and God would say, this is going to happen in your future. But before the far-off promise comes, pretty quickly, a close-up problem appears that threatens that promise. And in light of the close-up problem and in ignorance of the far-off promise, the person is confronted with the opportunity to make a nearsighted decision. Now, I want to ask you a question. Before we dive into the rest of our scripture, I want to ask, have you ever seen this pattern in your life? It's the college student who heads off to college with this far-off vision of a career where she will not only make a difference in people's lives, but she she will get paid to do it. It's the couple that stands at an altar. Maybe this altar here in our church, it makes a promise that they're going to be one of those couples that lasts. It's the the guy who says, I'm going to be the dad to my children that my dad never was to me, or the mom who says, you know what, I'm going to follow my mom's example. 
I'm going to be the mom that she was to me. A far-off promise saying, if I stick with it, this is what the future could be. But then, an up-close promise comes. The college student finds out that classes are hard and tests are difficult, and well, it's just not fun to stay in studying when your friends are out having a good time. It's the married couple who, who when the kids come along, they, they find that the kids just take all the attention, and, and they're both working hard, trying to make ends meet, and suddenly they just don't have time for each other anymore. It's the, it's the guy who allows the stresses of life to influence how he acts at home, and before long, he's treating his kids the same way his dad treated him, or it's, it's the woman who discovers she, she, she can't be the mom that she wants to be because she, she can't get pregnant. And the far-off promise is interrupted by an up-close problem. And that's when the nearsighted decision comes. That's when the student finds out about the website that has all the answers to the test, and well, that, that sure would make it easier. That's when the, the lady at the gym starts to flirt, or the, the guy at the office starts to give you a little more attention than you're used to getting at home, and well, suddenly it's just nice to be noticed in a way that's different, and that far-off promise at an altar seems so long ago, and well, this is new and fresh. That's when because of the disappointment in yourself or the disappointment in life, that, that pill or that bottle offers some relief from the, the pain that you feel. That's when nearsighted decisions can come in our lives. It could be a financial pattern. It could be a family pattern. It could be a, a spiritual pattern. But this is what I think you know. If you've ever seen this pattern in your life or in someone else's life, it's usually not just a one-time occurrence. In fact, what happens is it gets repeated, or we could say it becomes a chronic dysfunction. It sets a pattern in place in your life. This certainly was the case if we take a look back at some of Joseph's ancestors. It could be traced back to his great-grandpa Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 15, Joseph's great-grandpa Abraham on a starry night gets this far-off promise from God. This is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 15. It says, God took Abraham outside. He says, come on, Abraham, I want you to look up and count the stars. Okay, I get it. You really can't count them because there are so many. But this is what I want you to know, Abraham. So shall your offspring be. So I'm going to give you so many offspring that they won't be able to be counted. And he said, I'm going to do it. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur to the, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. God gives Abraham this far-off, blurry, no blueprint, no detail promise. And he says to him, Abraham, I can see a future for you that you can't even see yourself. Abraham, I know things about you that you don't know about yourself yet. Did you know that, that, that God can see a future for you that you can't even see for yourself yet? God knows things about you that you don't know yet. God has visions for your life, how he wants to use you, what he wants to do in you that you don't even know about yet. And you don't have to see it for it to be real. Only God has to see it for it to be real. But long before this vision became a reality in Abraham's life, well, he had a very up-close problem. If you can remember Sunday school, maybe if you went to Sunday school, we used to sing a song called Father Abraham, 
had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> See, long before we were singing that in Sunday school, and long before Father Abraham had many sons, he was just a dude named Abraham, and he didn't have any sons or daughters because of this up-close problem. His wife, Sarah, had borne him no children. His wife was infertile. She struggled with infertility, and it was a burden to them. And they prayed for children. They reminded God of his promise. And those children never came. And her infertility seemed to be threatening the promise that God had given to them. And so Sarah and then Abraham came up with a somewhat R-rated, indecent proposal to deal with this up-close problem. Sarah comes to Abraham and she says to him, Hey, I've got this Egyptian slave. Her name's Hagar. Here's my plan. The Lord has kept me from having children, but why don't you go sleep with my slave? Perhaps I can build a family through her. Yes, you read that right. Yes, that is in the Bible. The Bible's a wild and crazy book. You really should read it sometime. And then Abraham because he thinks that God might need some help keeping his own promise, makes a very, very nearsighted decision. He agrees to what Sarah said. He slept with Abraham, or slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, we can look at this because sex is such an idol in our culture, and we can think, okay, Abraham's like 90-some years old. Probably didn't take a whole lot of him convincing for him to go in and do this with his wife's young maidservant. But really, this wasn't about sex. This was about solving a problem. You see, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, infertility was so dreaded that in their marriage contracts, they actually came up with if-then clauses for what would happen if the woman couldn't have children. And, and some of the if-then clauses actually included conceiving with a concubine. You see, they, they were looking at God's promise, and then they took one of their culture's solution to keep it all because they thought maybe God needs some help keeping his promise. And because of this nearsighted decision, Abraham released the chronic dysfunction of jealousy and broken relationships into his family. Hagar did conceive, and she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Sarah is now looking at Hagar saying, she can have kids and I can't. She became intensely jealous of her. I mean, who could have seen that coming, right? God, in his time and his way, did keep his promise, and eventually Sarah gave birth to a son named Isaac. And the broken relationship and the jealousy between Hagar and Sarah was passed along to Ishmael and Isaac. And it really, it got so bad that Abraham had to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the family, leaving her a single mother and leaving his very own son a fatherless child, all because of a nearsighted decision. The family pattern continues. Isaac grows up, and he gets a promise from God. In Genesis chapter 26, this is going to start to sound familiar, God's talking to Isaac, and he says, For to you and your descendants, I'm going to give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham, who was Joseph's grandfather, great-grandfather, this is his grandfather Isaac, 
And God continues, says, I'm going to make your descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Same far-off, blurry promise that Abraham had received. And just like Abraham, Isaac has a very up-close problem. Now, in Isaac's case, his problem was that his wife, Rebecca, was drop-dead gorgeous. Like, if there was a Miss Mesopotamia contest, she would have won it. And I know some of you single guys are sitting out there saying, I hope one day God gives me that problem, right? But here is the thing. There was this big economic downturn in Isaac's homeland, so they had to move off to this foreign land to live in order to be able to survive and provide for the family. And Isaac gets to looking around, and he gets a little bit worried because his wife's smoking hot. And he's like, you know what? These guys like pretty women, and I'm thinking... You know what? I know men can have more than one wife in their culture, but ladies, they're only allowed to have one, one husband. So Rebecca has one space on her roster of husbands, and if someone else wants to fill that roster space, there's going to have to be a cut, literally, with a knife through Isaac's heart. Now, he wasn't just worried about his life. He, he gets to worrying about God's promise, and he's saying, you know what, God? I don't know if you thought about this, but if they kill me, and take Rebecca and my kids, they're going to be absorbed into this foreign culture with their foreign religion. You know what, God? Your promise is at stake. So in order to help God keep his very own promise, Isaac makes a near-sighted decision. This is his plan. He said, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, this is what he told them. He said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought to himself, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. He came up with a lie. And then he convinced himself, you know what, this lie is okay because if I don't tell this lie, God might not be able to keep his promise. Isaac became untrustworthy in order to prove that God was trustworthy. And we can look back and we can say, that's some ridiculously stupid logic. Well, my question is, do we see that same ridiculously stupid logic when we apply it into our own lives? H have you ever justified your own sin by saying you were doing it in order to help God accomplish his plan? It's, it's the couple that says, we know God wants us to be married. And the fastest way to get there is to save up money. So, you know what, we're going to live together so we can be financially set, so we can get married and do what God wants us to do. It's the fellow who says, you know, it's okay for me to get drunk with my buddies because sometimes when we're together, we, we talk about Jesus, and God would want that. It's the person who's looking at porn and saying, you know what, that's okay because I'm, I'm not out having an affair. Here's the lesson. If you are sinning to obey God, you are not obeying God. If you are justifying your sin by coming up with some reason that it actually helps God out to keep his promise, to fulfill his plan, you're not actually obeying him. You're getting in the way. The story continues about Isaac. It says, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, that's where Isaac was hanging out, he looked out from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Now, Abimelech's not too stupid. He says, either Isaac is one weird dude, or there is something he's not telling me. So he says, hey, Isaac, come see me. 
He summoned Isaac and said, come on, man, she is really your wife. What are you doing? Why did you say she's my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. He confesses that he made up a lie to do what he didn't trust God to do, which was keep his promise. The story goes on to tell us that God did what Isaac didn't trust him to do, and he kept that promise. He preserved Isaac's life, but not before Isaac released a chronic pattern of dysfunction, of deceit, into his family. In fact, this is Genesis chapter 26. Later on, if you want to read the craziest story you ever read, go to Genesis chapter 27, because Isaac's little boy Jacob grows up, and he pulls off one of the greatest deceits in all of history. He dresses up as his little brother, or as his older brother Esau. It wasn't even Halloween. And he goes in and deceives Isaac into giving away the family birthright to the wrong son. And despite Jacob's shortcomings, Jacob, like his father Isaac and like his father, grandfather Abraham, received the same promise from God. God says to Jacob, here we go. You've heard this story before. Now it's your turn. Your name is Jacob. It'll no longer be called Jacob, though. Your name will be Israel. So he changed Jacob's name to Israel, and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come for you, and kings will be among your descendants. Same blurry, far-off promise, same hazy absence of detail. And just like Grandpa Abraham and Daddy Isaac, Jacob has an up-close problem. See, Jacob did a little bit better on the being fruitful scoreboard than Abraham did. Jacob has 11 sons by this point, maybe 12, we don't know for sure. And he's looking at his sons and he's saying, kings are supposed to come from these sons. But then scripture tells us this problem arose. Joseph... Our character was tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brought his father a bad report about him. Now, we don't know if Joseph was being a tattletale here, or if that Jacob had to like pull it out of him by threatening to take away his camel driver's license or something. But what we do know is that Joseph, the youngest brother, the 11th in the birth order, comes back to daddy, tell him how bad a job these older brothers are doing. And Jacob has this very close-up problem because he's saying, God, you've given me this promise that kings are going to come for my sons. But I'm looking at these boys. They're driving me crazy. They don't really look like king material. It doesn't even sound like they are shepherd material. So Joseph's saying to God, God, I just, I don't see it. I don't see it. And so in light of his prognosis, Rather than God's promise, Jacob makes a very up-close and nearsighted decision. He loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and because he had been born to him in his old age, he made Joseph an ornate robe for him. Now, here's the thing with this ornate robe. You've probably seen the theater productions. Unfortunately, artistic representations of this robe have sort of made it look like something that's designed to win an ugly sweater contest at a pride parade. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't. It doesn't even matter so much that he gave Joseph a gift that the other brothers didn't get. This is why this is important, and this is why this was an, a nearsighted decision, because in that culture, clothing designated rank and status. 
How it was designed, the color, the length, the form of it was used to communicate a position of authority. Kind of like if you go to a football game and you see a C on a player's jersey or even a crown on a king's head. And this is what Jacob did. He communicated to all of Joseph's older brothers that I know God said you are supposed to be kings, but I don't see it. Joseph, Joseph's the one I'm picking for king. And he communicated to God that, God, I don't trust you to make the, the king decision when it comes to your promise. I'm going to make the promise for you. Joseph, like Isaac and like Abraham, in a nearsighted decision said, I think God might need some help keeping this promise. And if there's one thing we can learn from this story, it's this, is that trying to help God keep his own promise, it only hurts us. When God has a plan for your life, when he has a vision for your life, when he gives you a calling or a direction, far more often does he want you to just step back and trust him to fulfill that rather than stepping forward and getting in the way and saying, God, I'm going to take you from here. I got it. Thank you for the promise. I will take you from here. And Joseph's and Jacob's, Jacob's nearsighted decision once again, releases this chronic dysfunction into his family. Scripture tells us that when his brothers saw their father love them more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Jacob took that family dysfunction of jealousy and hatred and broken relationship, and he turned the volume all the way up to 100. Now here's the thing. We can see this nearsighted pattern clearly when we look at it in the lives of people in Scripture. And probably you can see it when you look at it in the lives of other people, right? You can probably think of some people that, okay, I've seen this. They blew things up in their lives. But my question to us today is, do we see it in our own lives? Do you see it in your life? You know, it's the, it's the reason for some of us that still get a statement every month, every uh, month from Ford Financial, <laughs> even though you made that decision years ago. It's why you'll stay up late tonight and hit play next on your favorite show on Netflix, even though you got to get up early for work the next morning. It's sometimes for us, it's why you got to keep on explaining that tattoo you have, even though it was many years ago you decided to get it. But, but sometimes it's more serious, isn't it? This pattern in your life could be why you only get to see your kids every other weekend. It could be why she left. It, it could be why a friend has to drive you to work because you aren't allowed to drive yourself to work. It could be why every time one of us pastors mentions that topic in a sermon, you're fighting back tears because at some point in your life, there was a situation that was all you could see. It was right in your face. It was so clear, and you thought you knew and you made a nearsighted decision. You had a nearsighted reaction. You said a nearsighted comment. And you realized now what you wish you had known then, which was when far off comes, our nearsighted decisions clearly look stupid. When far off comes, our clear. Our nearsighted decisions clearly look stupid. 
See, what's blurry ahead of us is often very, very clear behind us, and you can look back on situations in your life, and you can think, how didn't I see it? Now, here's what I want you to know. In this series, there's going to be some opportunities to feel bad about your stupid decisions. But today, I really want to give you some good news, and this is why I'm so excited about this series. I really am. This is the truth, though. I want you to know this. You didn't cause your nearsightedness, and you can't cure it. In fact, you might be sitting in your seat today, and you might be saying, I know where they're going with this. They're going to just tell me, I've got to be smarter. I've got to think ahead a little bit more. I'll probably get some advice. Maybe you even got a few scriptures you're thinking about. And what I want to tell you is that if you want to try harder, that's okay. But this series is not about you doing a better job because you didn't cause your nearsightedness. You can't cure it. See, when my son found out he was nearsighted, I didn't yell at him. I was like, how could you do this? And the doctor wasn't like, okay, if you just do 50 eye squints a day and then like 10 staring contests, it'll get better. The whole point was that there was a problem with his vision and he needed a lens outside of himself to help him see more clearly. And this is what I want you to know. As human beings, we live with a condition. There is a problem with the lens and how we view our lives. It is called sin. We were born into it, and it was born into us, and we didn't cause it, and we can't fix it. The doctor did tell my son that once he got glasses, though, based on how much he decided to wear them, we determined whether his eyes got a little bit better or got a lot worse. You didn't choose your way into nearsightedness. You can't cure your way out of it, but you can decide how you're going to treat it. Because here's the truth. God wants to give you not your vision. He wants you to give you his vision for your life. He can see things for you that you can't see. He has a plan for you that you may not know. And choosing his vision isn't about doing better. It's about trusting more. And it's about asking this question of yourself what nearsighted pattern in my life does God want to break, and what would it take, not for me to do better, what would it take for him to break it? It was a question Joseph was going to get to ask himself a lot. If you know the story of Joseph at all, you might know that Joseph received his own promise, and somewhat of a nearsighted decision, he decided to share with his older brothers what that promise was. In a dream, God told Joseph this, or he showed him this. Joseph's telling his brothers, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. Then he had another dream. And in another nearsighted decision, he told his brothers that dream too. He said, listen, come on guys. I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. This is the far off vision that Joseph was received from God for his life. As you can probably guess when he told his brothers, that went over about as well as a screen door in a submarine. This is what happened that led to a very close-up problem. Joseph's brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And the problem got worse. They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And Joseph's going to be presented with his opportunity to make a nearsighted decision in light of that close-up problem. And if you want to see what happens in his life, you're going to have to come back next week. But today, I want to ask you, what's going on in your life? 
What part of Joseph's story speaks to you? Maybe you're in your life, you're dealing with a close-up problem right now, and you can't see anywhere around it. You feel like there's no far vision for your life because this problem defines you. It's all you can see. Maybe you're dealing with a family pattern. Maybe you're dealing with the consequence of a nearsighted decision. You're, you're thinking, if I could have only heard Joseph's story before that. How is this story speaking to you? As we close today, we're going to sing one more song, but I want to do a little exercise with you. As the worship team begins to play the notes from this song, I want, I want to say to you, if, if this story is speaking to you and there's something in your life that you're like, this is all I can see, I feel like I'm just being nearsighted, I, I, kind of symbolically, I want you to close your eyes. Just close your eyes as a way of saying to God, God, I, I, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to make the decision today. Like, I don't want to see this anymore through my eyes. I realize that my vision of my life, my perspective, is it's broken. And with your eyes closed, I just want you to say to yourself, to God silently, whatever that problem is, saying, God, I, 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 I can't look at this this way anymore. Tell him what the problem is. Give it to him. And if today you'd say, you know what, I, I want to have God's vision. I, I need God to fix my, my, my way of seeing. I need his lens. Then as we close today, I want to invite you to sing a song with us. It's called Evidence. And the words of the song say, I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life. And if you want to see life, if you want to see the far off promise, not in a blurry way, but in a clear way, if you want to see past whatever that up-close problem is, I want you to open your eyes and I invite you as we sing this song to sing with our worship team. God, I see the evidence. God, show me. And God, where I don't see it clearly, give me the trust to know that you are working. Feel free to sing along from your seat. Feel free to pray. Feel free to stand up. Whatever's comfortable for you. But spend this time allowing God to minister to your heart and showing you the goodness in your life that he has given you.